this yes. is hell. All right, then. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. We stream live at 10 a.m. Chicago time for 80 minutes every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday in our podcast shortly after thisishell.com. The world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell happens on Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR, 89.3 FM. This Is Hell also airs abbreviated versions twice every week on the Chicago South Sides. Lumpen Radio, and weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, and thrice weekly on the UK-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com. For many people, the idea of the government being replaced by a corporation or run by a business, well, that's a dystopian nightmare. Citizens would have less of a say in how they are governed and their ability to redress grievances would be greatly limited, if not eliminated entirely. For others, it's a libertarian fantasy of unlimited freedom within the free market. And right now, that fantasy has come true in South Dakota, where the state motto is, under God, the people rule. But a more accurate motto of the current state of affairs in South Dakota would be, under God, Profits rule as South Dakota has institutionalized the notion of profits before people. At all costs, South Dakotans who embrace neoliberalism and fiscal conservatism want their taxes constantly and repeatedly cut. Sure, that constant tax cutting has caused two of South Dakota's counties to be among the fifth, five poorest in the nation, and teacher salaries rank 49th nationally. And yes, it did lead to last December's spectacle at a hockey game in Sioux Falls where teachers scrambled to grab at 5,000 single-dollar bills in order to pay for school supplies. But hey, lower taxes, right? Uh, Considering this unwillingness to pay taxes, it should come as no surprise that the Pandora Papers revealed South Dakota to be one of the biggest tax havens in the United States. Remember tax havens and how the U.S. government did everything it could to close the overseas variety? Turns out all those tax havens that were hiding money from taxpayers all over the world have now found a new home in the United States, and suddenly the U.S. isn't working that hard at closing tax havens anymore, which is weird. But when South Dakota really shows off their libertarian bona fides is during the annual Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. In 2020, the people of Sturgis did not want the rally to take place, fearing it would turn into a COVID super spreader event. In fact, they had the support of federal, state, and local health officials, but that doesn't matter in a state like South Dakota or a town like Sturgis that has little to say in whether the rally will take place or not because the rally is no longer controlled by the people of Sturgis as it is run by the corporation behind the rally. Sure, the rally may bring crime and violence, deadly violence, and a deadly virus, but as the Sioux Falls Argus leader reported, for anyone concerned about the rise in suffering and deaths, The visitors had added $1.8 million in tax revenue to state and local coffers. Now that's putting profits before people. We'll talk neoliberalism and its manifestation at the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally with historian Catherine McNichol Stock, author of Is the Rally Really Worth It? The Sturgis Motorcycle Rally and the Costs of Neoliberalism, which was posted at the website Origins, Current Events in Historical Perspective. You can find Origins at origins.osu.edu. Catherine is the Barbara Zecchio 
Cohn Professor of History at Connecticut College, where she won both the John S. King Award for Excellence in Teaching in 2009 and the Nancy Rash Award for Excellence in Research just last year. Catherine's publications, beginning with Main Street in Crisis, the Old Middle Class and the Great Depression on the Northern Plains, examines the relationship between rural whites and the federal government. Her most recent book, 2020's Nuclear Country, The Origins of the Rural New Right, explores the impact of militarization and nuclearization on the increasing conservatism of voters and leaders in North and South Dakota. In 2017, Catherine released the second edition of her 1996 work, Rural Radicals, Righteous Rage in the American Grain Belt, which provided broad, broad historical context for the Oklahoma City bombing to include the rise of anti-government, anti-black violence in the 21st century. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alexander Jerry. Alex, I believe there's somebody else in the uh, production booth with you. Yeah, Dan's here. Dan, would you like to introduce yourself to the listening audience? And fumble with the microphone a little bit in the process. Oh, that was me. I know. I know. It's, we only got one mic over there. What are you going to do? Hi, it's me, Dan. Hi, Dan. Nice to meet you. Uh, Dan is go- is here to train and learn to be one of the board operators on the show today. Alex is training him. Alex, how was your weekend? It's icicle smashing season now. Oh, yeah. Did you have to break big, off your house? Uh, yeah, it's so so much fun. I got a big one uh, waiting behind. Uh, right above Mel's, hanging ominously above Mel's uh, enclosure is like a four-foot icicle hanging off the back of uh, Carrie's Lounge. So I'm going to take that one home to my kids so we can go smash it together. Oh, sweet. Uh, that always is a sign that the roof is poorly insulated, I guess. That's what I've always heard. And yet I know that our roof of my own home is not insulated. We don't have any ice hanging from it, so I don't know what the deal is. I got to talk to every neighbor in my block then, because we got we got ice calls all over the place. Yeah, it's really, really bad. My weekend was a painful reminder that I need to stretch on a more regular basis because if I do not, and I then have to do some heavy lifting, or I just want to go for a walk to the store and bring groceries home, there's a real good chance my back pain will return with all of its spasms and a weekend spent doing not much other than uh, strapping ice packs to my sore back. And then I get here and Alex and I are comparing our stomach issues, which are both just miserable, but more important than my lack of discipline and laziness followed by frantic overexertion causing back pain and my stomach issues. Alex, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what is more likely to happen this year than the This Is Hell anniversary party currently scheduled for July 2020? Wait, nope. Uh, July 2021. Nope. Uh, Nope. July 2022. (laughs) So what is more likely to happen this year than This Is Hell's anniversary party actually happening on July 2022? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 20, from the 2000s the trucker's cap which comes in a couple of different colors the winter beanie or toque if you prefer you can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com clicking on support where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell without you we got nothing so thanks to all of you for your support we do not accept any grant money we don't make enough profits to be a not-for-profit So it's all on you. Thanks to Brett B. and Magnificent Me for showing their tithing-like dedication to This Is Hell. And thanks to Jamal R. of Barbados, who picked up a This Is Hell t-shirt for Henderson R., who is in Duluth, Georgia. Thanks, Brett, Magnificent, and Jamal, and enjoy your t-shirt, 
Henderson. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Alex will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Catherine on the nightmare that is the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally and South Dakota more generally. Again, the question from hell is, what is more likely to happen this year than the This Is Hell anniversary party currently scheduled for July 23rd, 2022? What is more likely to happen this year than the This Is Hell anniversary party currently scheduled for July 23rd, 2022, but canceled in both 2020 and 2021 due to the pandemic? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is after drinking, but before sleeping, eat a banana, then drink four ounces of milk, followed by eight ounces of water. After drinking, don't you want to just chug down milk? <laughs> Earlier this month, we cited a New Year's Eve Forbes article with the headline, 16 bartenders share their hangover remedies they swear by. And the article quotes Leo Holtzman, owner of SoCal Cantina in Miami, Florida. Confusing. I've never been less likely to go to a place ever. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, saying that after a night of heavy drinking, I always eat one banana and a small glass of milk, around four ounces, then an eight-ounce glass of water or more if I'm thirsty. The potassium, sugar, and water helps with hydration, and casein protein from the milk, also prevalent in cottage cheese, prevents your body from going into a catabolic state. Jeez. So your body continues to metabolize the alcohol while you're asleep. I only ever wake up hungover when I don't do this simple routine. And in that case, the trick is to muster up the courage to do a hot yoga class followed by a greasy burger, fries, and a beer. <laughs> so disturbing. That makes this week's hangover cure. After drinking but before falling asleep, remember to eat a banana, then drink four ounces of milk followed by eight ounces of water, and if you don't remember, hot yoga, a burger, fries, and a beer. The only thing worse than I can imagine chugging milk after going and drinking would be eating cottage cheese. That, that whole thing was just disturbing to me. A, a bar called SoCal Cantina in Miami? It's very disturbing. We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell in 2022. If you would like to run the board as Alex and Richard do, as Sebastian has begun doing this year, as Dan is learning how to do today, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. What better way to start your new year with a new gig running the board here on This Is Hell? It's the next best thing to winning the lottery, and it's a lot easier. If you would like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com hell.com we're looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above carrie's lounge 2251 west devon avenue in chicago's westridge neighborhood with shows beginning at 10 a.m monday through wednesday in our patreon podcast on thursday at the same time however we are very flexible and if you can only do it a couple of times a month we can work within your schedule this is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well and we actually pay our board ops a living wage if you are interested in becoming a board operator here on this is hell email me at chuck at this is hell.com of course with this position you do need to live in the chicago area however we do have other work that can be done remotely no matter where you live in the world so if you are interested in be being a board operator 
or working with us remotely, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We'll get you started on your new and exciting life as part of the This Is Hell crew. Coming up, neoliberalism, South Dakota, and the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. We'll also have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what is more likely to happen this year than the This Is Hell anniversary party currently scheduled for July 2022? Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. How would you like to see what the world would look like if we did not have any of these pesky governments in our way with their rules and laws and regulations and oversight and taxes, especially a world without taxes? How would you like to see what that world would look like? Well, you can every year at the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally in South Dakota. Here to take us on a tour of today's South Dakota and how it's reflected in the annual Motorcycle Rally, historian Catherine McNichol Stock is the author of Is the Rally Really Worth It? The Sturgis Motorcycle Rally and the Costs of Neoliberalism, which was posted at the website of Origins, Current Events in Historical Perspective, which you can find at origins.osu. Dot edu. Welcome to This Is Hell, Catherine. Hi, Chuck. Um, hello to Alex and Dan also. Um, I'm interested in the hot yoga idea, but not willing to try it. <laughs> I'm not willing to try the burgers and greasy burgers and fries <laughs> right afterwards either. Drinking a beer after hot yoga, that is very, <laughs> that's frightening to me. So you write that in October of 2021, South Dakota, long discounted as flyover country, had a national moment. The Washington Post published the Pandora Papers, revealing that over $360 billion of secret wealth was stashed in 80 trusts established in a state with fewer than a million people. South Dakota, the stories revealed, had become the Cayman Islands of the heartland. Last October, we spoke with Pulitzer uh, sharing journalist Michael W. Hudson, senior editor at the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which broke the Pandora Papers story in a collaboration with The Washington Post and The Guardian. Since the Pandora Papers story broke, has the U.S. government done anything to close those tax havens? I mean, if, if they were such a big deal in the first place, us running around the world and closing down these tax havens, have we done anything once now that we've learned, hey, there's these tax havens now moving into South Dakota? Nothing has happened that I know of, either on the federal or the state level. And in fact, my uh, cleanest impression is that nothing has even been commented on in the state of South Dakota because there's nothing to see here, I think, is the general impression. The most important thing about those trusts and what happened in South Dakota and some other states is that the uh, regulations against impermanence were taken away. So you can permanently hold money in trust. It doesn't have to turn over in the course of even 100 years, which can create wealthy families that are almost like uh, the you know um, older European dynasties. So why do you think the tax havens have not become a political issue after the U.S. government put so much of an effort into closing down tax havens overseas? Why do you think this? I mean, the Pandora Papers came out. It was a big splash in, in, in The Guardian and Washington Post. It was reported in The New York Times. It was reported on all the major news outlets. And then silence. Why do you think that that happened? Right. I, we are living in a very interesting time, um, The especially in terms of what are the issues that take hold in people's imaginations. Right. So this is a complex idea. Understanding what a trust is and how it operates is really complex. In fact, the reporter for The Guardian said, and I'm not sure this is entirely true. He said that the legislators in South Dakota who passed the new 
or regulations, or should I say deregulations, didn't understand what it was all about. Now, I'm not going to say that's the case for all Americans, but it is a lot easier to focus on the issues around COVID, for example, um, uh, January 6th, right? Um, and some of the cultural issues that are just always in our face. Are books dangerous in our schools? Those kinds of questions are more immediately in the front of our minds and take a little bit less um, work to, to actually to understand. And again, this was I, something that I had to come to understand too. I'm a historian. I'm not an economics historian. I'm not an economist. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons this is, and it's hard to see a victim. I think that would be the second reason. Okay, so some people are getting uh, really wealthy, but there's jobs in South Dakota, so that's all good. The, uh, the one thing that I always hear when it comes to um, neoliberalism or fiscal conservatism, that the people who employed these economic models, they didn't foresee the problems that they would cause. How accurate do you think that is in mm -hmm. general? Because that's always the excuse I hear. We had no idea that this was going to lead to such inequality, for instance. Well, right. That's what Bill Janklo, the governor of South Dakota, said um, about the credit card crisis and the recession of 2008. He said when he made it possible um, for there to be an unlimited uh, interest rate on credit cards, that he had no idea the problems that that would if he it, that would cause well, if he had no idea that unlimited interest rates would cause people to go into personal bankruptcy, then he didn't have good advisors. He didn't go into enough enough depth thinking about it. Uh, so again, like this is something that we need to think about. And I'm not sure I'm buying that as an excuse. And even if it is true, it's not a good excuse. It's not a very good excuse at all. And you would no. think that if, if that is your excuse, then, well, I'm certainly you're going to roll back the regulations that have led to this inequality. Exactly. Right. But, so put your money where your mouth is. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You write, as unlikely as it might seem, South Dakota provides one of the best places in the United States to examine the consequences of neoliberalism and its close cousin, fiscal conservatism. These terms describe a set of policies that have prioritized an unregulated market, small government, reduced social spending, all at the expense of public control and the Commonwealth around the globe for the past half century. These policies have made the rich much richer while leaving the rest to struggle. South Dakota, for example, has no personal or corporate tax. Its richest resident, T. Denny Sanford, is worth over $3 billion. Meanwhile, two of South Dakota's counties are among the five poorest in the nation, and teacher salaries rank 49th nationally. This would suggest that neoliberalism and what you call its close cousin, fiscal conservatism, they lead to massive inequality and increase in poverty and underfunded schools. Why does a system that causes such problems continue? Does it get public popular support in South Dakota? Well, you know, it, what's interesting about the uh, the neoliberal moment that we're in and that we have been in now for almost 40 years is that it comes as a package, right? If you said to somebody, uh, do you want to have no say in the Sturgis rally or no say in, uh, for example, in South Dakota, there's a major struggle over the legalization of marijuana, which the voters have voted in and the state is dragging its heel and enacting. Right. So do you want to have control over those issues? Right. Um, or do you want to have low taxes? Do you want to have control of your local schools, like other kinds of push button uh, issues that sometimes just get thrown in a big mix, right? So, um, so it's 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 
a complicated thing. People don't want inequality, but they may want what they call in South Dakota freedom or liberty, right? The freedom to do what they want to do, uh, the freedom to, to not pay taxes, right? In the end, the freedom not to get vaccinated, right? In the end, those things in some sense to them seem like it's worth the inequality until there's a crisis like the 2020 Sturgis rally um, presented in that town. How often does that kind, that so-called economic freedom actually lead to real freedom for the citizens of places like Sturgis? Well, I mean, again, like I, I don't get it, but I want it. I think it's incumbent on me as a historian to try to understand what freedom means. Um, even if it's, I mean, even if it's the freedom to, to die from COVID. The problem is when, as in 2020 in Sturgis, when people have said, the people have spoken and said, no, we don't want to expose ourselves to a, a, a deadly virus. We don't want, you know, 250, a quarter million uh, bikers coming into town, mostly unmasked. Um, and yet they're told, oh, well, sorry, you, you don't get to make that decision for yourself. That is, that is a crisis. So do lower taxes, do lower taxes mean less democracy for the people who would be paying those taxes? That's a really good question, Chuck. I think, again, this is a big pot of things. And one of the other things that the far right in South Dakota believes in is that the uh, that the United States was never really meant to be a democracy, it was meant to be a republic. So this idea of initiative and referendum, for example, one of the tools that people in Sturgis tried to use um, is really swept by the wayside. A representative democracy, a, a one person, one vote democracy is not what some people on the far right in South Dakota uh, think is the right idea. And one of those people who believes that is running, is uh, can, uh, contending, uh, thinking about primarying uh, Senator Thune um, in 2022 because he doesn't think Senator Thune is far enough to the right. You also point out that an event in December 2021 in Sioux Falls went viral when teachers at a minor league hockey game scrambled on their hands and knees to collect 5,000 individual dollar bills tossed on the ice. They could use the dollars they collected for classroom expenses. You know, the first time I saw that, I thought it was to pay for their own salary. And then I, when I heard it was classroom expenses, it was even more disturbing of an event. What right, Chuck. How much better would it be if it had been for their salaries? Right? I know, exactly. So what <laughs> what does that reveal? What does that event reveal to you about neoliberalism and fiscal conservatism? Well, th- oh, my gosh. There's so many levels to that, if you think about it. Right. So let's start with the, the setting for that. It what that was also a private event by a private a private um, minor league hockey organization. One of the things that minor league hockey organizations need is revenue at the ticket booth, right? So they, like minor league baseball teams, they try to put on events, entertainment, right, um, in between periods. And so they thought this event would make more money for them, right, uh, than it cost them to throw this money around on the ground, right? So that's the 
first layer that I find really interesting like that was supposed to be entertaining. But obviously it was incredibly debasing and demoralizing for all teachers in South Dakota who know how poorly they're paid. It, it, paying the teachers better is actually one of the things that um, Senator, uh, that Governor Noem talked about in the state of the state. So that must have hit a nerve for, for people in South Dakota. Maybe it actually uh, in the long run will lead to to some reforms but it is it it to me it's like a hellish hellish performance of what the long term results of prioritizing low taxes and small government are on individual people do you think uh, neoliberalism and fiscal conservatism in any way promotes tolerance and normalization of cruelty in this case towards teachers Oh, but I think it. I think it definitely can. If it right, if it if it pays right, if if it pays, uh, you know, it's sort of like what you say on people say about newspapers. If it bleeds, it leads, right? So, and I, I mean, you know, I think we also have to say that um, that a kind of embrace of cruelty or a laughing off of cruelty has has that culture has been exacerbated since the Trump years because it was way more shocking when he, um, you know, for example, if you think way back to him saying that Tom, that John McCain wasn't a hero because he, he, he likes people who aren't captured, right? Think how shocking that was, right? And if the leader of the country and the leader of the Republican Party is saying things like that, um, it just kind of, you don't realize it, but it's bit by bit, it opens the door um, to other practices. And you point out that, you know, South Dakota was not always like this back in 1892. South Dakotans elected a populist senator, governor, and two congressmen. They also made sure direct democracy could thrive back home, being among the first states to enact the initiative and referendum, the things that you were mentioning before, allowing citizens to bring a law directly to a vote. But you point out this started to change in the 1970s. Was a shift toward fiscal conservatism and neoliberalism due to a more public-centric economy failing? Well, the 1970s were rough. <laughs> um, I even remember waiting in line for gas um, due, due to the OPEC crisis, but I didn't live on a farm. And the farm crisis that was ushered in at the very end of the 1970s was really, really a significant mover of um, South Dakota politics and Midwestern rural white politics to the right. And there's two reasons for that. The the, a lot of the more um, left-leaning um, or progressive or, or, or even sort of neo-populist uh, voters were small farmers and they lost their farms and they moved away. Lots of them moved to the Pacific Northwest and that's a subject for the day. Um, and the people who stayed on those farms were wealthy enough to accumulate much, much larger tracts of land. Even if they weren't considered corporate farms, they were sort of family corporations with huge amounts of land. So all of a sudden you have the bottom falling out of the Democratic Party um, by uh, because of the actual demographics of the farm crisis. But also people were looking for help and they felt in many arenas the failure of the federal government to to help um, to help them rather than to to uh, overregulate them in South Dakota, it was George McGovern who was the poster child 
for what he was accused of is not understanding South Dakota, not being a real South Dakota, not having a South Dakota perspective anymore. Um, but there was also a national attempt um, and quite concerted organization of political action committees to target him and to make sure he wasn't reelected in 1980. That, of course, is the election that um, Ronald Reagan won. So if PACs were behind this shift, how big of a role did outside money play in turning South Dakota toward neoliberalism? Was you know, it outsiders I, or is it people yeah, inside? No, it's a, that's a, an, that is an awesome question. And I've, I've thought about that a lot. Like, does it matter that there were PACs? It does matter that there were PACs because they were very sophisticated in their own moment in 1980 with a lot of direct mail, um, some of which I've looked at in the McGovern papers um, down at Princeton. Uh, if you never received direct mail, we received so much junk mail, both online and in the, you know, in the post that we, we we take a look at it and, and most of us just throw it out. But in 1979, you and you, if you lived in South Dakota, you might not do that. You might look at it. You might think it, the, some of the claims were true. Um, and for example, he, um, uh, one of the the uh, biggest criticisms uh, and most important criticisms of McGovern was that he was anti-family values. And this is a guy with five kids. And he could not understand why in the polls over and over and over again, people in South Dakota said he's anti-family values. Well, they'd been told that through these direct mails over and over and over again. And, you know, it's like listening to Fox News. If you hear it enough times, it's going to start to stick. So, yes, I think it was important. But I also think it was really smart of those Republican activists to really be able to get a sense of what people in South Dakota were starting to worry about. Um, and I would just throw in one more thing that happened in the 1970s in South Dakota was the rise of uh, evangelical uh, religious organizations, uh, which of course has driven the Christian right in a lot of different voting areas, but you have to date them to a particular period. And I date that in South Dakota to the 1970s. Yeah, and you point out that Republican strategists recognized that the growing influence of both military-affiliated and evangelical right. Christian voters rendered a sharp turn to the new right. right. And, and one of my favorite facts is, and I talk about this more in, in my book, Nuclear Country, it was actually some of the airmen from the South and the Southern Great Plains who started some of those evangelical churches. Um, because if you think about the Dakotas and Minnesota, for example, like before 1970, that's like Lutheranism. And I mean, not that Lutheranism doesn't have a, some aspects that are conservative, it, it, but they're more mainstream, Presbyterian, right? And also Catholic, not the evangelical organizations that we think of today, but some of the most important and influential of those evangelical organizations in the 60s and 70s were founded by, um, by these airmen. You write that facing the collapse of family farming, as you were pointing out earlier, in late 1979, four-term governor William Wild Bill Janklow single-handedly enticed Citibank's credit card division to relocate to Sioux Falls, the state's largest city. To do so, he invoked the state's constitution's emergency clause and forced a quick vote on ending state regulation of credit rates. So how long would that emergency clause be in place, Catherine? 
Well, the emergency clause is part of the state constitution. It it gives you, it basically gives you something like three days to bring something to the legislature. You can foreclose uh, debate after a short period of time and um, and call for a vote. So, how often is neoliberalism the outcome of a declared state of emergency by a government? Well, that has not happened. One of the reasons that this story about Citibank is so interesting is that that, that hasn't happened. Uh, I don't think it's happened since, unless he also used it to, to deregulate the trust, but I don't believe so. Um, but it it shows he felt he was in a hurry to make a deal with Citibank, um, and he didn't really want um, the uh, he certainly didn't want any initiative or referendum to be used by the people of the state, and he didn't want the uh, legislature to be able to dive deeply into um, the discussion. One of those, one of those older things, and thank you for, for for bringing up the history here. One of the things that South Dakotans and other populace, other rural people throughout the Northern Plains were very, very skeptical of was bankers. Right, very skeptical of bankers. Uh, in the 1930s, um, another Wild Bill, Wild Bill Langer, who was the governor of North Dakota, he supposedly said, "Treat the banker like a chicken thief, shoot him on sight." So maybe, maybe Wild Bill Langer didn't say that. But uh, the larger point here is that Wild Bill Jenkel didn't believe that. He embraced the finance, um, uh, the, the finance industry, and actually helped that finance industry to become the deregulated um, part of the economy that it is now. So how much was that just due to the fact that there were changing campaign finance rules and that more and more private money could be used to donate to political contra- as com- political contributions without as much oversight or regulation? Right. That's, that, that's a really important part, too. There's, it's, one of the interesting things about history is, again, like how all of these different layers begin to feed off one another, right? The Reagan tax cuts. People forget how much Reagan um, cut taxes, how much that bought him his absolute landslide, right, over, um, over Walter Mondale in 1984, right? And we have not succeeded in rolling back those tax cuts. And then those have, of course, been added onto by Bush. And this, of course, I'm talking about the federal level now, um, by, by Bush and Trump. So that it's shocking when I tell my students what my grandparents paid in taxes in the, um, what tax rate they paid in the 1940s during World War II and also in the 1950s and 60s. It was upwards of 70%. You can't become super uber wealthy <laughs> if you're paying that kind of money in taxes. And you know, that during World War II, people were willing to do that. Slowly over the course of many, many years, people have thought that maybe they shouldn't be, as you said um, in your intro, maybe they shouldn't be paying taxes at all. And you point out that in the kind of local detail the Washington Post International Pandora Papers investigation could not provide, the story of the people of Sturgis shows the cost of neoliberalism to ordinary men and women, including those who broadly support its free market principles. So they broadly support free market principles, despite those same principles being the cause of many of their problems. To you, what explains the disconnect between their principles and the negative impact those principles have on them when implemented? Do they simply believe that free market uh, principles are still not being pursued to the extent that they need to be? 
I, you know, I, I can't answer that exactly. Um, but I, I do think, and, and one, I have gotten some in, very interesting feedback on this, um, uh, on this article. Some, one person suggested that the 60, that that number, 60% of people in Sturgis who wanted the rally canceled included a large number of people who've moved from California and other places in blue from blue states in order to enjoy the beauty of the Black Hills. And that is an interesting possibility that the demographics of the city of Sturgis have changed in the last 10 years enough to make a little bit of a blue-red divide even in that town. But I also think and this is really one of the main points of my article. There have been people almost since the beginning, but certainly since uh, since the 19, late 1980s and early 1990s, who thought that the rally ought to be reformed or canceled. And they've discovered that they haven't been able to have the power to do that, no matter how many different democratic tools um, they have used to try to try. We are speaking with historian Catherine McNichol Stock, author of is the rally really worth it? The Sturgis Motorcycle Rally and the Cost of Neoliberalism, which was posted at the website of Origins, Current Events in Historical Perspective. You can find Origins at origins.osu.edu. You describe how this was uh, the uh, Sturgis Motorcycle Rally was a community event where people were doing things for the community, celebrating with the community and doing things for the community. That changed over time and turned into something very different, as you call it, a hypersexualized event. Does neoliberalism and fiscal conservatism not only allow for events like what Mer Sturgis has become, but encourage events like Sturgis? Does neoliberalism encourage both profit-making and crime, even violent crime? I think it definitely can, and I think it definitely can encourage hypersexualization. Uh, again, some of the comments that I've gotten on my article is like, is are basically like, well, um, you know, uh, what do you? Why are you such a prude? What What do you have against strippers, or what do you have against, um, you know, um, got a lot of uh, men coming to have a good time? And you know, I still think you have to understand uh, that not everything is worth the money. And that's why I um, I quoted the young woman from Sturgis who said that, she, that the last thing she's going to do is try to capitalize by using her body um, in, order to, uh, in order to make extra money during the Sturgis rally, but that she certainly knew lots of people who did. That just seems so contradictory to me when it comes to what supposedly the values that Republicans employ when it comes to culture wars. Why do you think that Republicans like John McCain, like the governor, they go to the Sturgis uh, motorcycle rally to try to gain Republican points when in the, what's going on around them are such what, uh, you know, Republican moral evangelical people would see as immoral and unethical acts? Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. It's amazing. So, of course, there are different parts of the Republican Party and the more libertarian part of the Republican Party. Um, and people, histor political historians of South Dakota would remind us that west of the Missouri River has in the Black Hills, where Sturgis is, has always had a reputation um, for a kind of libertarian do what you want to do kind of attitude, right? So it's not that surprising that that's a location that drew people um, <clears throat> who wanted uh, who wanted um, 
you know what they said in Vegas. Uh, what what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. There are hashtags. What happens in Sturgis stays um, in Sturgis, right? But that. But the question about John McCain, uh, Sarah Palin, and others who also have claim to have Christian values is a really interesting one. And it leads to a very funny story about John McCain, who appeared on a stage at Buffalo Buffalo Chip, which is a big campground east of Sturgis. Um, and he was really he was really enjoying a kind of rollicking um, possibly um, uh, in need of uh, what's the hangover relief? Banana and um, and uh, cottage cheese. Um, they might be needing that in the morning. Um, but so he and he also knew that there was about to be a beauty contest uh, on the stage after he was done. And so he offered up his wife and said, "Oh, Cindy would be so good in this beauty contest." But he didn't know it was like a wet t-shirt contest or something where actually breasts were the whole point of it. Um, and I guess the crowd just roared. They just thought it was the funniest thing ever. So he possibly was a little bit naive about what um, people come to Sturgis for. But it has become, you're correct, no matter what its culture is, it's the place for um, conservative politicians to perform their regular guy status, right? It, just riding motorcycles, that's something that almost every Republican presidential candidate has done, gotten on a motorcycle. And I believe there's some of that with um, President Biden, too, to prove that he's a regular guy. And another point, and I'll also say, um, and sorry for running on here, um, the history of the culture of motorcycling is also part of this story. Right. That's what I was just about to ask you about, because you write that the 1960s and 1970s changed everything from American politics to the culture of biking and inevitably the Sturgis rally in this easy rider era. Bikers became associated with the counterculture, drug use and sexual liberation. So did the economic model change or did culture change? Because one of the things I don't really get about that is this hippie culture. You wouldn't necessarily connect with libertarianism, you might think of something that is more collective or community oriented. So did the economic model change everything or did culture change? And why did 60s culture lead to libertarianism and not to something more of a collective response? Yeah, right. So I think if we all think about it, there's probably somebody we know who's pretty much on the libertarian right maybe refuse to get vaccinated, you know, maybe, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever the issue of the day is, right? It, who's, you know, in his, in his or her 60s and 70s and had a more hippie-like past, right? So there are, there's definitely a group of people, actual humans, who've made that journey themselves from being part of the 60s counterculture to moving toward a kind of right populist counterculture, because that is part of the right, is this idea that we're, it's us against them. It, it's the same feeling, right? Nobody gets us and they want to force us to have a vaccine. Uh, whereas like when they were 25, they felt like nobody understands how bad this war is. And they're trying to force, the government's trying to force us to go to Vietnam. So that's one thing is like the actual individuals have, actual individuals have 
taken that journey. And again, like middle-class white men in particular. But there, there are a couple of other interesting things that happen in the 60s, 70s, and 80s with the culture of motorcycling. One is, and this is so curious and so interesting, bikers got a reputation for being gay. So, right? Think about that. That's not the reputation of the bikers at Sturgis. And some of this hyper heterosexuality that you see developing in the 80s and 90s can be read as a response to this overall stereotype of bikers being gay. It might even be hard for your listeners to imagine a cultural stereotype of bikers being gay unless they think about the village people and YMCA and the two guys who wore leather motorcycle stuff. Right. There's even a scene in Easy Rider where um, the the guys go into a, a Louisiana cafe and they get beat up because the assumption is that they're gay. So one of the things that changes and it's absolutely and I'm not saying there aren't gay rider clubs. There definitely are. And they go to and they go to Sturgis. But the vast majority of bikers who go to Sturgis are in, in part following up on an old need to remind and perform their heterosexuality. So that's that's one of the things I find um, most interesting in this transformation. An easier political one to understand is the way in which Ronald Reagan in 1980 brought those same hippie counterculture guys over to his side by supporting anti-helmet laws and also um, bailing, rescuing or bailing out Harley-Davidson. You know, the, what's really weird about that is uh, this connection between neoliberalism, fiscal conservatism, whatever you want to call it, and machismo. Because you talk about how in Sturgis, uh, people are insulting to women on the street. They're being, uh, they uh, objectify women throughout the celebration. So what's the connection then between neoliberalism and trying to overstate your masculinity? I think it's only this idea of profit, right? And again, like what happens in Vegas, what happens in Sturgis stays there. That is That brings a lot of people to your event. If you're going to be able to, and you know, a lot of people, and this is, again, I'm, I'm sure some of your listeners are thinking this. A lot of people who go to Sturgis are just like ordinary doctors, lawyers, blah, blah, blah. That's one of the complaints you'll hear about from bikers about Sturgis is that they're, it's sort of like a rhino. It's like a fake biker, a person who thinks they're a biker, but they're just performing it for one week. They're just there at Sturgis to like, you know, go crazy for a week or something like that. And they even, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk online about how terrible it is that people don't ride there anymore. They actually have, like they have, tra- they have um, trailers and they bring their bikes, right? They don't actually do the ride there. So they're not, they're not real bikers. But if if one of the things that the developers of um, Buffalo Chip um, and, the, and Full Throttle Saloon learned is the more raunchy, the more money. And that's neoliberalism at its core. 
you write that to solve the problem of drunken disorder in the town square, for example, in Sturgis, rally organizers encouraged a local entrepreneur, Rod Woodruff, to open up a private campground, the one you were mentioning, Buffalo Chip, east of town. Likewise, when native leaders protested the construction of an Im- immense biker bar within a mile of Bear Butte, a federally protected religious site, local whites encouraged them to capitalize on the rally themselves, perhaps by promoting tourism on reservations with the goal of someday, someday buying the land back. Most significantly, in 1991, people in Sturgis agreed to allow a motorcycle gang called the Jack Pine Gypsies and the town to create an entirely new governance structure, a corporation named Sturgis Races and Rally Incorporated. The newly privatized management of the rally was sure to improve it, or so they hoped. How did life change for the people of Sturgis under a corporation that essentially replaced the government control over the rally? Well, one of the things, one, some of the some of the things that happened were good, and it's what they were looking for. The campgrounds meant that bi- drunk bikers, you know, uh, weren't urinating in the middle of town. You know, they weren't th- leaving their trash in the middle of town. There were these campgrounds that were privatized for profit places, and people will tell you now so unbelievably expensive um, that a lot of the bikers don't even stay anywhere near Sturgis anymore. They'll stay in Wyoming or Montana and come in for the day. Um, so um, so th- some, some they got some of what they wanted. It was over the long term that I think people came to see that there, that a bigger and bigger rally, a more and more profitable rally wasn't necessarily good for the town itself. One of the best examples of this, I think, I, I just think it sums up neoliberalism completely, right? Is that um, all the bikers have had to go through Sturgis in order to get to the campgrounds. Um, that's just the way, or, or at least very close to Sturgis to get the campgrounds. Um, that's just the way the interstate system works. So over time, um, the corporation was really trying to to encourage the federal government, the state and the county to put money in um, and and the, the citizens of Sturgis to put money into building a bypass road, right? So that it would be quicker for everyone to get to the campgrounds east of town. Um, it's an I-90 bypass. Uh, but the people in uh, Sturgis voted down the last million dollars because they said, why would we want to fund a bypass that meant that people wouldn't come and spend their money in our town? And we don't want people staying in our town. We don't want people peeing in the campground. We, we don't want them lighting fires and things, but we want them to come and spend their money in their town. Um, so no, we're not, we don't want to fund the bypass. Why would we do that? And the answer was that by then, Rod Woodruff, the owner of Buffalo Chip, was so immensely wealthy that he paid the last million dollars himself so that there would be a bypass um, for people to go um, directly to the campgrounds, right? So that is that that is in the end what what is the end result of neoliberalism whether people foresaw it or not is that someone could be so wealthy that it doesn't matter what the people in the town voted or didn't vote he just paid for it himself so is the city of sturgis then in competition with the sturgis motorcycle rally are they at loggerheads essentially is it a zero-sum game if one gets more money the other one gets less I don't think exactly. There's definitely money that goes to Sturgis into into local coffers. There definitely is. And there are people who because Main Street is sort of still the iconic location. Um, there's always a big picture taken every year of all the bikers crowding on Main Street. Right. So 
there are definitely the more bikers there are there's still more money being spent in Sturgis and local people have learned to capitalize on it by I you can rent out your front yard if you have a postage stamp size uh, front yard you can rent it out to somebody to camp to to you know to uh, put up a, a, a tent or whatever they want to do as long as you provide bathroom facilities that that regulation was passed by the town um, so you know, but it, it, the, the question of my essay is really the question, and it wasn't it's wasn't raised by me. When I say, is the rally really worth it as my title, that's, I mean, yes, that's me asking, but I, it's a quote from a local Sturgis resident um, who wrote online, like, really, is the, is the rally really worth it? Just think about it. And I, I mean, I think it's so interesting to think about the ways in which people in Sturgis and all around Sturgis have been trying to even cancel reform or even cancel the rally since the 1990s and have been unable to do so. So how dependent is Sturgis on the motorcycle rally? Without the motorcycle rally, would there be a Sturgis? I, there would be a Sturgis. It would some ways it would be it, in some ways it would have to find other sources of revenue. And there's a wonderful book on tourism in the West called Devil's Bargain by Hal Rothman. And he calls it a devil's bargain, whether it's Taos or Aspen or Sturgis, you get stuck. Tourism makes you stuck. You depend on it, and then you have to give the tourists what they want. Um, and if what the tourists want is, you know, um, strip bars and um, and other and other kind of hypersexualized entertainment, and also I just want to say this <laughs> again, listeners who ride, I have also ridden. I rode. I had a great friend with a Triumph motorcycle. We rode all the way from D.C. to Tampa. I also get the reason why bikers want to go and ride in the Black Hills. It's absolutely absolutely gorgeous. It's a wonderful thing. Um, but it's gotten to be too much on many, many levels and too much a part of the, um, the structure of a, basically a tax-free state. You write that nearby communities also struggle to maintain their older sense of community and identity beyond the rally. In 2021, a judge ruled that despite covenant language to prevent it, homeowners in a new development in the Black Hills were free to open their homes to Airbnb guests in the summer months and perhaps never reside there themselves. So what impact does that have on a community? Does neoliberalism benefit from destroying communities? Well, isn't it's that's isn't that that what we're learning all around the world? Like Barcelona, you know, from Sturgis to Barcelona, what in the world is the Airbnb um, and you know VRBO uh, uh, profit uh, profit giant doing to our communities? There's it's this is a this is a really really important questions for for people who just want to live in a place where the same people are your neighbors week in and week out within reason, and it's not somebody new, somebody new, somebody new, someone who doesn't care, someone who doesn't vote, somebody who doesn't take out the garbage, like someone who doesn't renovate. Those are the things, right? At, at, those are the things that are overwhelming lots of communities. It is really interesting to think, I mean, I've read a lot of articles about how Barcelona has been overwhelmed by tourists, right? Um, Venice, overwhelmed by tourists because it's 
Um, and again, much of this is pre-COVID, <laughs> except in Sturgis, where it's, it's been through through COVID, right? At a certain point, too many people is too many people, and the, and too and making it too cheap for people to come is the wrong is the wrong thing. It's not too cheap to go to Sturgis. It's extremely expensive, and that's one of the things that people get upset about. You write the Sturgis resident Roger Call wrote to the Meade County Times Tribune and accused local officials in collaboration with that corporation Sturgis Race and Rally of siphoning off profits that should go to the town. You quote Call saying this whole SRR thing again is all about one thing money. The taxpayers of Sturgis and of South Dakota are the true losers with this big hoax. You add another writer wrote simply SRR sucks. How are taxpayers the losers when it comes to SRRs and what is is that big hoax right so one of the things that develops over time is a sort of nationalization of the srr board and sort of this distinct separation between who is on the board and who's making decisions and who actually lives in the local area right so um and and you know i don't know if there's um i didn't inc- i did not include that quote because i have evidence that there that um some of the people on the board have been siphoning off profits as he says um but the fact that he thinks they are and he's beginning to smell a rat that we that the people of sturgis are actually being taken for a ride by elites from outside the state and inside the state of course right um uh people who've been made very rich uh like rod woodruff from the sturgis rally itself um, whereas local people, again, one of the other examples that I give is that it's so um, it, you can make so much money in one or two weeks in, in Sturgis that there are storefronts on Main Street that are empty every other week of the year. Um, it, and uh, no one can afford the rents there to have uh, like a hardware store. Right. So what kind of community is that? And it would make sense if you live there to wonder if those profits are really going where they're supposed to go. And you write that still concerned for public health and safety. However, city manager Ainsley, uh, he offered a free grocery delivery so residents could simply stay at home during the 2020 rally. Of course, staying home uh, and missing the chance to capitalize on the need for workers during the rally was not a choice. For most residents, for them, the mayor arranged for free COVID testing. So during the 2020 rally, it was stay at home if you can, but we will accommodate those who must go to the rally because they depend on it for their financial survival. So what is the quality of life in Sturgis? Because it sounds awful. Uh, you know, I um, I spoke with and interviewed um, the woman who's head of the Sturgis Museum there. And even she says, yeah, it's just horrible for the first for those the weeks at the rallies going on it's so loud it's so crowded it's dangerous um and but but she says it's unique people love bikes there's a lot of wonderful people from around the world right so she's she's the top sort of local person who's trying to um um, publicize uh, and and make the Sturgis rally seem um, wonderful. They have a, a hall of fame. That's fantastic. Like so, this is all fantastic. And even she says, "Yeah, I really have to alter my routine during those two weeks. I try ne- I try to really stay mostly stay out of the town." <laughs> 
So uh, you mentioned something earlier, and you said it's a whole other conversation, but I've got to ask you. You were talking about people (laughs) moving from South Dakota to the Pacific Northwest in the 1980s, and there is a huge rise in the ultra-far right in the Pacific Northwest. Is there any connection between South Dakota and that? Yeah, the, this is like the book I never wrote, and it's one of it's like my grandmother, who was from Grand Forks, North Dakota, had an expression: "A raspberry seed in your wisdom tooth." And this this idea about how um, depopulation of the Northern Plains influenced the politics of the Pacific Northwest um, throughout the 20th century is is really really interesting to me, and I hope somebody writes this book. Um, but in the in the early period, in that there was huge depopulation, of course, during the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl, right? If you think about um, the Oki migration, the same thing happened. Or I'm sorry, you know, Oki is a slur, so I'm using air quotes there. So people leaving from Oklahoma and Texas and Kansas to go to California, the the Steinbeck um, Grapes of Wrath story was also going taking place uh, with people leaving the Dakotas and Nebraska and eastern Montana to go to the Pacific Northwest. Those people um, were culturally conservative, very people of faith, you know, um, uh, uh, people who believed in, in family, but they were often um, uh, much more progressive or populist, left-leaning populist. Some were even socialists who went um, to the Pacific Northwest. And one of them, right, one of them, the uh, a couple generations later became uh, a social a democratic socialist um, mayor of, um, I think, it, of I think it's Seattle. So, so there are some. What we see in the Pacific Northwest, right, is this collision of the far right with a very, very progressive, even democratic socialist um, culture, uh, 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 political culture. And I think you can see the influence on both those things of the migration, the out-migration of people from the Northern Plains who headed there um, from the, like 1925 through like 1985, probably two, two to three generations of people. That is just fascinating. I'm glad that yeah, I followed it? up on that. That is really fascinating. We, yeah, I know. I've, I've got one last question for you. We've been speaking with historian Catherine McNichol Stock, the author of Is the Rally Really Worth It? The Sturgis Motorcycle Rally and the Cost of Neoliberalism, which was posted at the website of Origins. You can find Origins at origins.osu.edu. One last question for you, Catherine. And I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call <laughs> the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, few local people in the 1980s and 1990s likely anticipated that free enterprise solutions might over time increase the size, danger, and chaos of the rally, but it did exactly that and not by mistake. Why do we not recognize that the free market profits from chaos, and what does that tell us, and what should that warn us about the free market? We don't recognize it because we live every day. We are right. Any regular human being is more concerned about, you know, um, is the daycare place for my baby going to be open or is the, is my toddler sick um, today? Like, how can I take care of the toddler? Is that an ear infection? Like, how are we, you know, the kitchen table issues that every ordinary person exists in and change over time is really hard to first 
perceive and second to forecast, right? But I think we know enough now. I think we know enough about the privatizations of prisons, for example, and how they drive down wages in that, right? We know, we know enough about the problems of the privatization of public schools. We are learning quite a bit about the problems with private money in elections, right? So 40 years is enough time to see that these, that these were, and, and again, like, there are implications worldwide. We've lived long enough to see those um, to see those uh, problems develop now, and I think we need to call them out for what they are. Catherine, thank you so much for being on our show this week. This is a fascinating article. Again, the article is called Is the Rally Really Worth It? Catherine's publications uh, include Main Street in Crisis, the Old Middle Class and the Great Depression on the Northern Plains, and Nuclear Country, the Origins of the Rural New Right. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. I really enjoyed this conversation and your writing. Thanks. Thank you, Chuck. All right. Take care. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. Seriously, prove me wrong. Send an email to Chuck at thisishell.com and prove to me that this is not God's favorite radio show. I really want that to be disproven. If what you just heard from Catherine on neoliberalism and the Sturgis motorcycle rally, who knew? Was in, if that was in some way enlightening or deprogramming you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you finally realize that, yes, this is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time podcast shortly after at the same place patreon.com slash this is hell next week the page I'm sorry on uh, last week's patreon podcast it was another edition of this week in hell my review of what I got out of last week's show which is not what you got out of last week's show I didn't know that's what it was going to be that it was going to be another this week in hell but when I started writing it I realized that it was and this week I am absolutely certain what you and I learned Last week was different because, like every week and every show, you and I bring very different lived experiences to the show, and what we glean from it differs based on our own perspectives of the world as well as our separate and unique worldviews. But last week, I am absolutely certain that none of you were affected by the show in the same way I was because... You're likely not a subscriber to the small-town northern Michigan weekly newspaper, the Houghton Lake Resorter. You also probably do not have family in Michigan who live in areas where the militia movement operates. You, you know, the, the movement that is freaking out central centrist liberal media outlets like CNN, which is now airing a nightly show called Democracy in Peril. Yeah, democracy lost a long time to capitalism. So democracy was in peril 40 years ago, but CNN didn't have a show about that because CNN was raking in the profits. Well, I've got bad news for CNN. It's not imperiling democracy that the militia movement and its supporters are so keen on as a fear that they're lo- it's all a fear that they're actually losing something else. And you can find out what that something else is by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com/thisishell. We also shared an interview from 15 years ago, a conversation from February 7th, 2007 with sociologist Harwood Schaefer, a research associate in the University of Tennessee's Agricultural Policy Analysis Center, who had just posted the counterpunch piece, Do Industrial Farms Harm Small Communities? Why the Family Farm is Good for Rural America? It's a fascinating discussion of what Harwood believed could not only help the family farm, but keep the agricultural industry in check. And that is consumer producer cooperation as an urban consumers working with rural family farmers 
which still sounds like a very good idea and still hasn't been implemented. But you can only hear our now weekly feature, This Week in Hell, and a conversation on what could have been done and what might still be able to be done to save the family farm and undermine corporate consolidation of the food industrial sector that we need to survive by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. When you do become a subscriber, you also get a secret code word that gives all Patreon patrons $5 off each piece of this is hell merchandise where you can, which you can find right now at this is hell.com. When you click on support, Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Uh, What is more likely to happen this year than this is hell's, Anniversary party currently scheduled for July 2020. Nope. nope. 2021. Try again. July 2022. Yes, there you go. Tom- <laughs> Tomas J says, my funeral. <laughs> wow. Wow, coming right out of the gates there. That's right. a that's a good one. Krimsky K says, Chuck Mertz sends Scarlett Johansson to collect his Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> uh, Braden S says, Chuck's lotto number's coming up. <laughs> 3, 4, 10, 14, 18, and 22. Every week. Uh, I try to, yeah. Uh, Wojek R says, Soylent Green. <laughs> Zach N says, Your mother's butt. <laughs> and finally, what is more likely to happen this year than This Is Hell's anniversary <laughs> party happening in July 2022? Pete V says, Nothing is more likely to happen, damn it. <laughs> we will have more of your answers to this week's question from health on tomorrow's show or on later on this week again the question from hell is what is more likely to happen this year than this is hell's anniversary party currently scheduled for july 2020 guess again july 2021 let's try it one more time july 23rd 2022 pencil it in now what is more likely to happen this year than uh, this is hell's anniversary party currently scheduled for july 2022 the person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. It's currently available at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com. And if you just heard that weird noise coming from my stomach, that's uh, the last day of me having to take these horrible prescriptions that are really screwing up my stomach. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. On the morning of January 31st, 1945, 77 years ago today, Monday, a 24-year-old Detroit native named Eddie Slovic became the only U.S. soldier to be executed for the crime of desertion since the Civil War. And I heard the story as a kid from my parents who grew up in Detroit and from their parents who raised families in Detroit. I remember it being a huge deal for them if you supported Eddie Slovic or not. From the age of 12, Slovic had done time in reform schools and jail for offenses including burglary, theft, and disorderly conduct. At the onset of World War II, his criminal record had caused him to be classified 4F unfit for duty. Oh, they waived that during the Iraq War, by the way, just in case you're curious. But by 1944, he'd been reclassified 1A, drafted into the U.S. Army, and sent with an infantry division to France, where he and his unit were attacked by Nazi German artillery. Slovak was terrified. He asked to be transferred to a rear position, but was turned down. So he wrote out a statement saying he would refuse further orders and brought it to his commander, who told him that if he tore up the piece of paper and threw it away, all would be forgotten. Slovic 
refused to do so, and was immediately arrested. He assumed he would receive a dishonorable discharge and a jail sentence, and having already been behind bars more than once in his life, he knew he preferred that to the possibility of getting killed in combat. And here's where this history gets really rotten. To Slovak's shock and disbelief, a court-martial sentenced him to death. Slovak wrote to General Dwight Eisenhower, pleading for his life, but Eisenhower, concerned about the growing number of desertions, turned him down. Yes, the military had a concern about the greatest generation deserting. Well, you never really hear that about the greatest generation, do you? Outside a French village, Slovak was taken out to face a firing squad. Shortly before his death, he said, quote, They just need to make an example out of somebody, and I'm it, because I'm an ex-con. As I remember it, if you thought Eddie Slovak was an innocent kid who should never have been in the military in the first place and did not deserve the death sentence, you were either unpatriotic, un-American, or more than likely a commie. If you thought Slovak was a traitor who deserved to die, you were a heartless monster. There's even a 1974 made-for-TV movie called The Execution of Private Slovak, starring Martin Sheen, naturally, as the only American soldier to be executed for desertion since the Civil War. My mother and father did not agree on much politically. I, in fact, they didn't agree on anything politically. My mom would ask my dad, who are you voting for for president? So she would vote for the opposite person because she just figured he was always wrong. But they agreed that Eddie Slovak did not deserve to be executed. And my father was a right-wing veteran. In Rotten History, January 31st, 1964, 58 years ago, also Monday, in Liberty, Mississippi... An African-American, man, and I'll tell you right now, when you read the words in Liberty, Mississippi, an African-American during rotten history, you know things are going to go bad real fast. In Liberty, Mississippi, an African-American businessman and farmer named Lewis Allen was shot to death. Three years earlier, he had witnessed the murder of an NAACP voting rights activist, but in the face of death threats, he had been pressured to testify before an all-white jury that the murderer, a white supremacist Mississippi state legislator, had acted in self-defense. So you see a, uh, so you see a white supremacist murder, a voting rights activist, and then you have to testify that it... It was in self-defense, or you'll likely be lynched. That's basically what Allen was facing. Shortly afterward, wanting to reverse his false testimony, Allen had gone to the FBI and the U.S. Justice Department asking for protection only to be turned down. But word of his request had spread through the local grapevine, and ever since then, Allen had been harassed and threatened by local white racists, including the Ku Klux Klan. Fearing for his life, he finally decided to leave Mississippi and move to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where his brother lived, not knowing that Milwaukee, Wisconsin was an incredibly racist town. But the night before his planned departure for Milwaukee, his son found Allen dead on his own property with two bullet holes in his head. County sheriff and reputed Klansman named Daniel Jones was suspected of killing Allen, but the case was never seriously investigated until 1994, and no arrest was ever made. Only 58 years ago today. You know, I wonder if that TV series, that propaganda series about the FBI has done an episode about FBI agents refusing to protect an innocent person who wanted to testify against the Klan. Because I'd watch that episode. I'm not going to watch any other episode because they're all propaganda. 
Finally, in Rotten History, February 1st, 1968, 54 years ago, Tuesday in Saigon, during the first days of the Tet Offensive, which would turn U.S. public opinion against involvement in the Vietnam War, a Viet Cong captain named Nguyen Van Lem was captured after having killed two South Vietnamese, uh, sorry, killed uh, South Vietnamese Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel Nguyen Tuan, along with his wife, five of his children, and his 80-year-old mother. I had no idea that this guy ended up was killing all those people before, well, what's about to happen? Handcuffed and dressed in civilian clo- clothing, Lem, the Viet Cong, was brought to the South Vietnamese National Chief of Police, General Nguyen Nok Luan, who was out on the street. Told of Lem's offense, General Luan responded by pulling out his thirty-eight revolver and shooting Lem point-blank in the head. The summary execution was captured by Associated Press photographer Eddie Adams in what would become one of the most famous and enduring images of the Vietnam War. Adams said later that he'd, re- that he'd expected General Luan to interrogate his captive at gunpoint, as Eddie Adams had seen General Luan do so many times before, but didn't think he would actually shoot him. But Luan himself later told the Italian journalist Oriani Falacci that he'd pulled the trigger because, quote, I can't respect a man who shoots without wearing a uniform because it's too easy. You kill and you're not recognized. General Luan himself was later wounded, losing his leg. And after his side lost the war, he fled Vietnam, moved to northern Virginia, and opened up a pizzeria there. In 1978, he was investigated for war crimes and threatened with deportation. But Adams, the photographer, testified in Luan's defense, and the matter was dropped. Shortly before Luan uh, retired in 1991, a piece of graffiti appeared in the men's room of his pizzeria, quote, We know who you are, Effer. And I'm cleaning that up for radio. He died of cancer seven years later. And you gotta wonder what you say to defend somebody who committed a summary execution without hesitation. And you're a photographer who took the picture. Now that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, who is our next guest on this week's show? I'm really excited tomorrow for Helen Ann Curry to be on to talk about her new book, Endangered Maze, Industrial Agriculture and the Crisis of Extinction. And do we know who will be our final guest on this week's show yet? Not yet. But, Jeffy? I'm assuming so. Yes, Jeffy, and a moment of truth. Uh, Thanks to our guest today, historian Catherine McNichol Stock, author of Is the Rally Really Worth It? The Sturgis Motorcycle Rally and the Costs of Neoliberalism. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing today's show. Thanks to Dan for dropping by and being trained. Thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. This week's Hangover Cure is... After drinking but before falling asleep, remember to eat a banana, then drink four ounces of milk, followed by eight ounces of water. If you don't remember, try hot yoga, a greasy burger, fries, and a beer. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.